This is part two of Dealing In, episode 10, the first of the Down From 10 feedback shows. There's a lot more in the backlog, but before we get started, I have two announcements. First, Free Will, episode 5, will post this weekend. Friday if all goes well, Sunday if it doesn't. Second, the big announcement. Mark your calendars. October 29th is the day to buy my new mystery novel, And Then She Was Gone, which Chris Lester describes as, quote, a taut, gripping mystery with prose so tight you could bounce a quarter off it. Detective Clark Lantham narrates the action in a tight, spare, and sardonic voice that captures the spirit of the noir detective genre without falling prey to its verbal excesses. With an engaging and fully modern Seamus, a fast-paced narrative style, and a mystery that probes the bleeding edges of science and culture, and Then She Was Gone sets the standard for a new age of pulp noir adventure. Priced at $3.20, this book is designed to make you laugh, gasp, sweat, and turn the page for more, and judging by the early reviews, it's doing its job. This is the first in a planned series of three novels and eight short stories, though he's so much fun to write, the series could easily extend indefinitely. No cliffhangers in this one. This is a self-contained mystery that opens up a world I'll have fun playing in for quite a while. I created Clark Lantham specifically for the ebook market. Now, the ebook market is an interesting, chaotic place right now, and success depends on being noticed. So here's what I want to do. On October 29th, come to www.jdsawyer.net. There, you will find links galore. If you have a Kindle or Kindle reading software installed on your iPhone, computer, iPad, Android, or Blackberry, go to Amazon. If you have a Nook or Nook software installed on any of those devices, go to barnesandnoble.com. If you, like me, have another brand of reader or cell phone, hit Smashwords instead. With your help, we can push And Then She Was Gone far enough up the charts to attract attention outside our little community. For $3.20, less than the price of a cup of cappuccino, you too can join Clark Lantham in his first adventure. It's going to be a fun experiment, and I hope you'll join me. And now... Dealing in. Artistic Whispers Productions presents Down from Ten, a country house mystery written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer. Author contact information at www.jdsawyer.net with original music by Danny Shade. This podcast contains adult language, sexual situations, and bizarre humor. Listener discretion is advised. laughing because we are talking about our tea drinking habits. I just insulted Dan, who who drinks iced tea. (laughs) Back to the flyover state thing. There's a lot to be... Iced tea is an offense I find really hard to forgive, and it does come over the come out of the flyover states, the southern states, and and that's I mean I'm sorry. Even even worse than the iced tea is that sweet tea (gasps) in in the south. Like oh, I I get you know I. Grew up in Texas. I got the iced There's tea no thing excuse. from there, but the sweet tea thing I did not get, and it's still just ugh. yeah, it's too sugary. Although 
even, Thai iced even tea with Thai food is nice, yeah, but that's, that's true. a different drink. And, it, and, it, and that's sugar and milkiness of the Thai iced tea and Thai iced right. coffee is to balance out the super spicy. It's like sweet right. and chai and Indian exactly. food. You know, it's, it's yeah, and, and, but it, there, there's nothing in, near as spicy in southern food no. to need to be balanced out by that kind of sweetness. Yeah. Well, but the, everything is sweeter down there. I mean, I, I don't know if it's still yeah. true today, but what, 15 years ago... They change the recipes for Coke and Pepsi when it's sold in the South and make put more sugar in it. Wow. I'm pretty sure that that's what they I don't know about that one. I do Coke know that when I, was in, when I was in Atlanta for a summer a few years back, about I guess it was about uh, it was 2004, 2005. So when I was in, uh, in Atlanta, I noticed it was, I was like having to order things not sweetened, of things that would normally not be sweetened here. Um, I had... I had hot wings at, at one of their wings places because the person I was staying with was a big wings aficionado. And their hot wings tasted like they'd been drenched in really sweet barbecue sauce. Mm. And that was their version of hot. Mm. On the bright side, I have this thing about sweet potato pie. <laughs> I just, I just to say that. I'm, I, for those who know me and, uh, and Dan and Chris are learning this lesson fast, I'm a huge, huge, huge foodie. And oh, I will try anything, and I love to try anything, and I love to I find food. I learned that lesson I... at the first pottery weekend. We did. <laughs> I was, this was one of the reasons I was like, "Oh my God, these are my people!" I'm home. <laughs> food. <laughs> one of these days, I need to make my mom's recipe for a sweet potato casserole. Um, it involves brown sugar and cons. They're marshmallows. I don't think they're I'm a little leery of the like yam no. marshmallow dynamic. It's not marshmallows, no. It's, it's yams. It, it's it's uh, yeah. It's it's sweet potatoes, brown sugar, um, the butter, and uh, mm. it's and pecans, and it's yum. Yeah, when I was at school in Ohio, one of my dear friends has. Southern family and his ma used to FedEx him sweet potato pie. It was the most miraculous thing. <laughs> when I was traveling through Texas, there's a lot of awesome food in that oh, part of the yeah. world. I mean, we we spend our whole time doing the California dissing of the mm -hmm. food of the world, but like well, the only reason never had hominy is good is because good. we steal everyone else's food. That's absolutely, mm -hmm. yeah. no shame. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> but and yeah. okra. Oh my god, the okra oh. in the south. Oh, so yes. good. Particularly, particularly when they do it right and they dry it before they cook it. Yeah, because I've only had it Mediterranean style, and it's super, it super slimy. slimy which it. I, I don't mind. I'm not a big texture person. Yeah. So, but oh, oh the was southern. One thing okra. I missed <gasps> when I moved away from Texas was the fried okra. Mm, so good. <gasps> so good. And I had this thing I've never had anywhere else outside of Texas, like a roadhouse in Texas, which was. Um, essentially like the hominy that you have in Pozole mm -hmm. in Mexico, but it was cooked in this tomato red sauce. It was just a little side dish. It was like oh, okra yeah. and you got that instead of grits mm -hmm. in this particular part of Texas. And then, you know, your fried chicken or whatever mm -hmm. else you were ordering. Oh, it was so good. I still miss it. Someday See, I'm going back. The hominy with lime and salt mm. just by itself so yeah. good. But that's, yeah. I guess that's a little more of a Mexican thing. I actually like grits. The the only way as I've ever, as I ever had have sugar in it. Mm. Actually, no, that's Peruvian. I got that from my... I was going to say that that's, that's not my... For 40 years. Anyway, we've totally derailed on yeah, the food. Again. <laughs> <laughs> it's Kitty's turn to read an email. Okay. Yes, back to feedback. <laughs> oh, this um, is a feedback show. <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, I thought we were doing a food podcast. Or, <laughs> or was it a culture and sex? The food or, porn or... round table. <laughs> oh. That the hasn't happened in your book yet, Dan. What? There hasn't been any food porn. 
Is there going to be food porn? Uh, no, or is that giving away something? There's food porn in the yeah. Antithesis yeah, Part Book 1. Por- there's definitely food porn in Predestination. Um, let's see. Will there be food porn in Down from 10? Um, no, there's food erotica in Down from 10, okay. but not food porn. <laughs> Oh, that's something. <laughs> there, there's a lot. There's a lot of stuff where people are cooking and taking great care about it, but the focus is on the conversation, <laughs> on the food. All right. So, <laughs> I think I just broke Chris's brain. <laughs> Whereas in the in the scene in the sequence in Predestination with the spices, total food born. Yeah. I don't know if you yeah. remember that one. But, yeah. Oh yeah. I remember. Yeah. Sorry, Kitty. Um, this is from Paul, who says, "For an um, this is on Down from Ten, Episode 8. For an episode with a beginning hot enough to make one sweat, thank you very much. <laughs> I thought this developed into one that overall rather dragged. I kept waiting for something else to happen, and it didn't. Especially after this long wait, I found it disappointing. Not up to your usual standards, Dan. Uh, unfortunately, it is a novel, and novels have certain structural requirements, and you chop them up as best you can for the podcast, but you have to have that part in the novel where people figure out what the fuck is going on, and that was that episode. So, sorry it dragged, but, you know, if you run into one of those episodes, just put it on pause and wait for the next one and listen to two in a row, and you'll be fine. There you go. This is that old pacing question. How do you handle yeah. your pacing? I handle my pacing um, as if I'm writing a book. So most of the time, do you write from an outline in order to keep your pacing under control? Or? No, not really. Um, it's a little... Well, this is complicated, but this would be good because yeah. I'm sure we have different approaches. Um, I I, I kind of break it up into, into chunks, whether it's, you know, usually from point of view shifts. Um, and then I write, I try to write most of the point of view internal in a point of view so that it plays with a with a three act dramatic structure like a like a short story or oh, sorry like a short story or a television series or episode but then aggregating them together they create a traditional more or more traditional five act narrative structure for a book hmm. um and i do that basically to keep myself interested um, because I can get lost in the minutia of what's going on, whether it's the details of someone's actions or thoughts or whatnot. I can go off on rabbit trails for days. Not that any of you listening to these feedback shows might have noticed that. Because <laughs> <laughs> I keep it very well hidden. Oh, but, yeah. <laughs> but um, run ship this. <laughs> but to help, but but to help keep myself engaged with where a scene is supposed to be going, I aim for a basic three act structure in any particular scene and then um and then when i revise i try to bring it more in line with that because i do wander when i'm writing is it probably comes from your film background that kind of approach you think um actually i had it before that but it made Mm -hmm. it made moving into doing screenplays a lot easier than evidently most people have Mm -hmm. with it well that's one of the things i mean i'm not giving anything away but with sort of when you're writing a, a novel one of the things you think about and you have to think about after it's sold to a publishing house is whether it's going to sell to Hollywood or not. Right. Because that's if you're going to make any money, that's where you're going to make some mm-hmm. money. And one of the things that I always say is that I would I do not want to write the screenplay. Because mm-hmm. I, just, I just don't think I have the right skill set for mm-hmm. that. And I would much rather someone who was a professional yeah. and knew what they were doing. Yeah some, yeah, some of my stuff I would love to adapt. Other stuff I wouldn't at all. Um, I think I would not be good at adapting the antithesis books. Mm. to screen um, although they they'd be great on yeah them. yeah I, I wrote them with an eye towards being adaptable mm-hmm. 
But the things I think are important about them are not the things that are going to play well on the screen. Right. And so I will have trouble divorcing myself from that. Interesting. Whereas down from 10 would be much easier to write for the screen. A, because it started out that way. Right. But B, because the nature of the action and the nature of the characters, so much of what's there can be conveyed visually. The internal lives of the characters that take up all the narrative space can be conveyed very quickly visually. Well, it's kind of like an actor's actor. wet dream. Yeah, it's I an mean, actor's I mean, wet dream. You can dream. just see, because it's so character-driven, right. you can just see people loving to portray those And yeah. so much range for the characters. Exactly, I mean, yeah. getting to play, as much as I hate him, yeah. Jeremiah was a tremendous acting experience for me, to be able to, to show yeah. that kind of... Of range, and you guys haven't have only begun to see the, uh, <laughs> the range that many, Jeremiah reaches in this book. How many? How many episodes are there? Twenty-five episodes total. Okay, so we're slightly over halfway. Yeah, we're at uh, sixteen. Is the one that's in production okay. right now. What about you, Chris? How do you handle pacing problems? Or I read a. Um, Jim Butcher had a blog for a while in Live Journal where he talked about um, tips for writers and structure and was one of the things that he went big into. And the way that he broke it down is he said, you can tell an entire story through a set of scene, what he called scenes and sequels. A scene being the character tries to do something and, unless it's the end of the book, fails or has additional complications that come out from that or not only doesn't succeed, but makes the problem worse. And then... That's so Jim Butcher. I'm sorry, uh but all of his books are just like that. Uh (laughs) And then the sequel is the point where the character stops, reflects, and says, well, shit, that didn't work. Now what do I do? And, you know, the, the, that process of attempting a task and then reflecting on it and figuring out where you're going to go next, um, is something that I keep in mind as I'm, um, working through writing. Um, I don't stick quite so firmly to the something's always going wrong thing as, as Butcher does. does, but I try to, I try to have those, those scene, the action scenes interspersed with the more talky bits. Mm-hmm. Well, um, that's a, a good quality. Mm-hmm. And just to, you know, cause it's a nice rhythm and yeah. I like to end each episode with something that makes the listener say, oh my gosh, I can't believe you left it there. I want to know what happens next. <laughs> well, that's kind of the, that's a different dynamic when you're doing, when you're podcasting to when right. you're actually writing a book. Oh, like, it, it is, it isn't, but yeah, you can got... end a chapter the same you, way. Well, that's a and, choice. It's an interesting, right. I mean, I know some readers who hate that when the chapter ends on a cliffhanger and oh. some who want their chapters to have a little bow tie. Right. I, I tend to end, I tend to end, try to end every scene with, Either a cliffhanger or a, a teaser, mm-hmm. so you know you don't ha- necessarily have to go forward, but it leaves you feeling like, oh, I want more. <laughs> um, but as you were talking about that, I was and talking about Jim Butcher. One of the um, this is going to seem unrelated, but it made sense in my head. Okay, um, <laughs> it's your podcast. When I was studying uh, the structure of classical music in junior high and high school, is where my sense of pacing really developed. Um, Particularly looking at uh, at long symphonic works that are made up of shorter pieces, like with Bach and Mozart, and uh, with uh, um, Wagner. When you've got you've got the light motifs running through, and they um, 
they develop and then they go away for a while and you'll have your stretches of pastoral and then your stretches of violence. And there's this, each symphony has, long symphonies have this internal structure where they can wander all over the place, but it all feels like part of the same thing because they're pulling very specific technical tricks to help remind you subconsciously of where it was and where it's going. Mm, yeah. And I think I picked a lot of those tricks up and have cross-applied them to literature. It's a complicated, many-threaded thing to mm. <laughs> have <laughs> to, to think to about. It. Yeah. Where'd you, your, your, your sense of pacing and structure, where does that come from? Well... Oh God! I'm. <laughs> you get to be on the pointy end of the oh, question man. now. Um, I'm a militant outliner, mm-hmm. and I think it probably comes from academia. Um, I just find I work best from an outline. And and Solus, the the first book in the series, is actually written on a super strict outline mm-hmm. to the point where I had events that would occur on page numbers, mm-hmm. and I had to like write to that. And that's because I was uncomfortable with the genre because i'd never written Mm -hmm. urban fantasy before i'd never written a longer length comedy before um and i'd never written adult Mm -hmm. before and so i was like i I just i have to have a really strict structure and i have less strict outlines for the other two books um but i I think i might return to a stricter outline i think i just works really well for me but um one of my solutions is double pov and then the first book is multiple pov because i was modeling off of the romance novel But uh, after that, I, I'm far more comfortable with two POVs. So I tend to have a, a primary and a secondary POV character, usually because of area location. So I'll have mm-hmm. one character who has activity in one area and another character who's like back at the home base. Right. And But another it's reason... Really, it's really useful when you get stuck in one spot. Yes, you can, you can switch. You can to the other one and exactly. wait until you figure out what to do next. But the other reason to do that is double pacing. Because mm-hmm. then if you yeah. have to have, you know, sort of a slowdown area with, with, like, your main POV character, you can have, you can yeah, truck, handy, chuck your it? secondary into the brink, you know, cause mm-hmm. an explosion or whatever, <laughs> to give you some action so that the slowdown is interrupted and you right. can put your chapter break in with a multiple POV instead and that gives you your pacing back so right. i'm that's sort of my pacing crutch is double pov mm-hmm. um yeah. but i also do i i do like to outline i think it really helps cool. me keep because pacing is one of the things that i i'm really concerned about mm-hmm. like I, I feel like i have a handle on the whole characterization thing i have no problem <laughs> building sympathetic mm-hmm. and friendly and, and, fu- and funny characters yeah. um but because I am writing comedy and because I am writing a but timing it it has to be razor sharp or it doesn't work. Yeah. That was one of the big challenges with Down from Ten. Yeah. Because it's there's so much of it is comedy and so much of the comedy is in the dialogue. But you have to use things like dialogue tags and body language cues that in the script were stage directions. Mm. And figuring out how to fit those in without fucking the timing up. Ugh. <laughs> yeah, in, well, in a in a strange way, when you are writing a character driven, mm-hmm. which um, the interesting thing about the antithesis progression is that it's to some degree character driven, but mm-hmm. it's really um, the way the characters are coping with action. Right. Whereas um, down from ten is the way the characters are coping with other characters. Right. So it's sort of the definition yeah. of character driven, and the difficult thing that most character driven writers have, and I include myself in this, is how you're action interposes itself because the action right. then come becomes the difficult yeah, thing to weave in because the dialogue yeah. is real i mean i can have my characters can have a conversation with each other mm-hmm. 
for 40 pages, <laughs> but nothing will happen. They'll just be like, blah, 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 right. blah, blah. And that doesn't do the book yeah. any good. I had, when I was first uh, learning screenwriting, I was, I was talking, talking to someone, I was helping them move. It was someone who had, who had done quite a bit of screenwriting years ago. And I had asked her to, um, to take a look at the screenplay I was working on. And she asked me to come help her move out of the blue. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, uh, okay. So we're sitting around unwrapping the glasses in her um, kitchen talking about screenplay structure. And she said, so here's the, the problem with, with the way you're writing your screenplay. And I said, what's that? She said, okay, look at what we're doing now. We're having a conversation, right? I said, yeah. And, I'm and she says, and what are we doing? And I said, we're having a conversation. She said, no, we're unwrapping the glasses. Yeah. You, your characters don't unwrap the glasses. They just stop and talk to each other. No one in real life does that. Right. There's it's always true. something else they're doing. So ever since then, I've been like, okay. Although there's some, been some parties where right. it's a well, whole yeah. big group of us sitting around <laughs> doing nothing but yeah. talking. Oh, and those are wonderful. But it is very unusual. It is unusual. And we it, it, it happened. in the last chapter of Down From Ten. Yeah, there's a couple of, the hot tub scenes in Down From Ten are those scenes. Yeah, it, and, and, and that's the kind of situation where it, where it happens when you're at a party or. In and a so, hot tub. It, yeah. In a hot tub. <laughs> Basically, in a social situation where you're not actively doing things but in most films in most screen or most plays in most books most podcasts you have action going on in the background and they don't all take place in some place with a hot tub or a conversation you might need as a writer you might need to have a conversation occur right but can, you can use that to also have action occur that you know like people because, you know, stuff, and that helps driving or getting component exactly and, yeah. Yeah. yeah and if that you does help move with the pacing your characters from one place to another and you don't want to just say and then they drove there you can yeah. have them talking while they get there yeah, yeah exactly okay next email okay so this email is from Mary and she says, I'm assuming it's a she this time. Yes, it's Mary Laura. Yeah. I'm really curious as to the identity of the object on the top left of the Down From Ten webpage. <laughs> Might it be the origin of the spookiness in the story? Or is it some random figure put there to confuse us listeners? The person on the right of the page represents what seems fairly obvious by this stage of the story. Please enlighten me. <laughs> is this the, the body cast? Yes. The top left is the body cast. Um, it's, uh, it's actually a photo of the body cast I took when I learned body casting. And since body casting opens the book, I thought, hey. So it's the body cast that sits, that, in my, <laughs> sits in my hallway. And since Carol's getting her body cast taken at the beginning and she's got the snake tattoo on her back, I put one of my pet snakes on it. <laughs> so no simple. significance at all. <laughs> And the uh, the other figure on the top right was basically because I needed to fill the space, and it matched color-wise, and I thought it worked, and there's plenty of sultry stuff in the book, so I thought it would work. Mm -hmm. oh, oh, I of have... course, with the latest um, chapter, with all the discussion about Satan, the snake takes on new, new relevance. <laughs> I, I had voted to put in a... a an apple. <laughs> no, not, not an apple, no. but a, but, um, a digital clock. In the background, <laughs> since we have a countdown. Oh, nice! Oh, that's a good idea. But it didn't quite work with the color scheme to be able to to actually have that in there and have it recognizable as a digital clock. I have to ask both of you guys this okay. question, though, because this has happened to me in the past. I'm wondering if it happens to other people, other writers. Okay. Which is that something will like 
go into the script or into the story at the beginning and I have no idea why it's there, like an, like, mm-hmm. you know, the smoking gun or an object in the corner and it just happens. And then near the end of the book or maybe in the next book, I'll be like, oh, that's why I stuck that in there. And suddenly it'll become uh-huh, significant. Yeah. Have all, you had that? All the time. It's like your subconscious is yep. writing for you yep. sometimes. Yep. Like, One of my favorite things as a writer. It's so much fun. When I um, started out writing Making the Cut, um, I made Daniel a skyball player because I wanted to establish that he was athletic. And, you know, to, to build up that sort of physical fitness kind of thing, um, part of that was the deliberate mounting of Chekhov's mantelpiece with the fact that when push came to shove, he would be able to kick ass. Mm-hmm. But the specific use of his skyball skills in hand-eye coordination was something I did not realize until exactly. the climax. When I was it's writing so that cool when that happens. It's yes. one of the best things. Well, one of the things I have fun doing is uh, Chris has nicknamed my technique Chekhov's Howitzer. <laughs> <laughs> when I'm at the beginning of the story, I just scattershot a bunch of stuff. Anything that comes to mind, I'll stick in there. Oh, you can go and cut it out later. I can cut it out right. later if it doesn't work, but what I more often try to do is I get towards about the middle of the book and when I get to the middle of a book I'll usually jump ahead and write the ending and then I look back and I figure out all those little things and I try to figure or actually this is usually the way I figure the ending out if I don't already have it in mind try to figure out how they all work together and if there is a way that they can all work together without being contrived Mm. and if there is I will use that to dictate the ending (laughs) That's the way that I DM when I when I'm working when I'm running role playing games. Mm. I take all the different. I set up a bunch of plot threads for each of the specific characters that people have created, mm. and you know because they give me their characters and their backstory, and then I figure out the parts they don't know about, right. <laughs> and then figure out how to weave those things together so that they all work together to tell one coherent story. Mm. If I'm lucky, that's a lot of fun. So and then yeah and then there's always there's always the residual stuff that either gets cut out or turns out to be useful in the sequel. Yeah. And, oh, so much fun. It's real it's one of the hardest things. I don't know if you've had this happen. Neither of you well you, well you do podcasts so it probably does happen to you where after the first thing is published or the first book is dropped mm-hmm. you suddenly have all of these regulations are in place and you can't you don't have oh the luxury my, of going back and oh changing I them know. anymore mm-hmm. and you learn to be or I have learned to be really cautious about what external details I you fill into my universe yeah. because I realize that I'm putting rules in place that I then can't break mm-hmm. anymore mm-hmm. and this has resulted in at least in my case of me establishing a sort of not a very concrete background world because I don't want to describe too much of my supernatural element, for example, and how much it is his influence in the world because I don't know what I'm going to need in the future book right. and what rules like I'm going to curse myself. Never, never blow, destroy the, yes. bo- the earth on page one because you might, <laughs> you might need, need it later. It later. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true, but it's an interesting sort of aspect to writing that I didn't encounter until I was a published author because mm-hmm. I didn't. I, I always had the luxury of going, when I was writing the second or the third book, of being able to go back to the first one and change it, and now I can't do that anymore. I encountered that when I, the first draft of the series, of the Antithesis series, which I wrote during the late 90s, the reason I stopped was because I ran up against all the walls of the world I'd built, and I couldn't do anything with it. And I didn't understand enough about why they were there to be able to fix it, so I shelved it. Mm. And so this time going through, starting over with predestination, I wrote the world with walls I knew I could jump over if I had to, and with walls that 
would probably serve me well all the way through. One thing that is helpful with that stuff is when you tell the story with a limited POV. Absolutely. And yeah. Because then, as long as the characters believe it, then it constrains their actions. But you can always decide later that they were wrong. <laughs> and it, why do you think I have every POV character in uh, Predestination is an unreliable narrator one way or another? <laughs> I do that with the science in the Parasol Protectorate universe mm-hmm. because I know how the science is going to work in the end. I, I, fi- I finally decided I better figure that one out. Mm-hmm. But one of the sort of only overarching see. is is how does this science work? I can't wait to see that because I, being a Victoriana tech and science aficionado, I was like reading that. I'm like, oh, she pulled that from that I paper. Do. She it's, pulled that from this person. I totally oh, did. I hope she does something with that. You're probably one of the few people in the world who's gonna like notice those things. So yeah. much fun, TM. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But that was one of the things that I get to have unreliable narrators in that. Mm. But it is hard when you are writing with immersed characters. Yeah. And I, I do. What do you I mean? I have characters that live and breathe the world that you're describing. And so yeah. because you don't have a dear Bob or, as you know, Bob, mm-hmm. um, you can't describe things to your reader because your right. characters know what's going on, what yeah. their world is like. Right. It's really hard to... Um, I mean, I and I, and I do consider it a cheat for a writer to put in uh, the boy a, from the sticks, yeah, or a time traveler or something mm. like that, because that, that was, really is an excuse mm-hmm. character. That was one of the hardest thing about Down from Ten was the two was the two neophytes, Idel and Jeremiah. I didn't actually want to have characters like that there, but I got, I got, I think through about episode two of the miniseries when I was writing the screenplay. And I realized that no one who didn't know this kind of subculture, who would come in watching it, was going to have an emotional in. So I decided no, I true. needed those characters, even though I hate writing characters like that. And I will say that Adele, to me, does not feel like one of those characters. Even oh, though you. I know that she's... Mm-hmm. No, I, I don't know if this is an insult or a compliment. Okay. <laughs> but, uh, um, but she feels more like she's been part of this group. Then she doesn't, you know, like well, well, she's she's, she's no she's known Carol and Amos for a long time, but she's never been part of the group. I but... tend to attribute it to her sort of missionary yes. traveling yeah. kind of and world view. I have, right, mm-hmm. my my mother is a missionary kid, and so I have grandparents who were missionaries and grew up. And one of the things I always found really um, fascinating about that whole dynamic is they are accustomed to going into alien cultures and just taking things as they come. Mm-hmm. But then they come home and their home culture has changed in the 20 years they've been away. And they're and upset they by it. they can't yeah. handle it. Mm-hmm. It's like army brats. And, right. And so, you know, I've, you know, coming in as a missionary, yes, she's really conservative, very religious in this group of hedonistic heathens. <laughs> but... For her, this is an alien cultural experience, and she's got that mode. Yeah, yeah, you can notice that with her. Yeah, I'm realizing now that I had one of those, as you know, Bob, characters in the first episode of (laughs) Metamore City. We all have them, though. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the thing about being a writer, is there are these... You just have to work really hard to disguise them. Or make them more interesting. It's not just archetypes and tropes that you deal with. It's like when you're a a kid writing fantasy for the first time, you almost always write Tolkien-esque fantasy. It's Mm -hmm. like these trials by fire you have to Mm -hmm. write through before you realize, I don't get the luxury of using that excuse Mm -hmm. now. Like, I get to do it once, maybe twice, Mm -hmm. but after that, I have to be a good enough writer to get my point across without using any of those things that 
mm-hmm. that get mm-hmm. used too often. I also yeah. discovered that I really like um, fantasy worlds and other uh, and science fiction worlds where they throw you into the deep end and you have to figure out the culture, but you know, through experience. Well, um, it can often the world George can become Martin a character. does it really well. He, uh, you know, where he throws you into this world, and you just have, you know, everybody there knows what's going on, but you have to figure. But it the out. reader is the, as you know, Bob person who uh-huh. has to figure it out. That can mm-hmm. be really, really, it can be frustrating for the reader, though. I, I have had mm-hmm. sci-fi novels where I've given up yeah. on the book because Neil Stevenson does too much, that. too much. Mm. Yeah, great writer though he is. is Almost impossible to get into for that reason. But with, um, that's one of the things I really enjoyed about Solas, uh, was the, um, you're talking about the embedded point of view. Your characters really see themselves as the middle class Victorians saw themselves, rather than as we know the middle class Victorians really were. <laughs> which I loved. I mean, it was driving me nuts because I'm like, this is Victorian propaganda. Oh, wait, that's the point because they don't know. All the stuff going on because they're constrained in that box. Yeah, mm. and a, at that point, I really once once I figured that out, I was like, "This is brilliant!" Oh, thank you, dear. It's a hard line to tread, though. I will say yeah. because, for one thing, it means I throw out terms and I just assume that my if my reader is interested in knowing what those terms are, they're going to have to like they have to look them up, like yeah. Fishu or Curious. And the other thing is, there are certain topics that are res- that as a result of that POV, I can't address like racism and sexism and bigotry Mm -hmm. and i just and my character if she were truly an honest character to her time period is going to be all of those things Mm -hmm. you know she's going to be very bigoted and very racist yeah yeah. you can't you came close though having her being the victim of the bigotry and racism yeah that's that was my solution is Mm -hmm. i i Mike, the conceit is that she gets to be more objective than most women in her position because she's been right. the object of this and kind of... One of the things behavior. I love about her character is that not only is she the victim of, of the racism and bigotry, but she accepts this as yeah, acceptable. It proper. Yeah. It, it, well, of course I'm, I'm this way because I'm that. Half yeah. Italian. Yeah. You know. Because I look... Because my complexion is incorrect kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's... And I will say that that is to a certain degree it can see i was asked recently you know how realistic is the fact that she you know if she looked kind of italian how much would she be and the answer is not probably not as much as i have it in the book um except that i have her very dark skinned but still european ethnicity was not as frowned upon as almost all of the rest of the world if she was southern spanish it would have yeah they have more of the moorish still or any kind of gypsy influenced Uh appearance but certainly anything that might have been associated with any kind of muslim or islamic culture would have been very and of course Mm -hmm. black i mean this we're still in slavery in this time period the the only way you get around that in victoria in the victorian world is if someone is so exotic yeah. That they're a curiosity. That is exactly what I wrote in the email to this reader. Mm-hmm. I was like, you, you end up with these women, they were called the originals mm-hmm. or the incomparables. And they were women and they were usually widows or mm-hmm. married, quote unquote, married actresses, that kind of thing, who were incredibly exotic looking right. and had quite powerful positions in society. Um, and they could be uh, black women. Yeah, and Josephine and, Baker in the exactly. 20s is a good example of that phenomenon. And they're, But they are, and all cultures have this, the sort of yeah. taboo exceptions that yes. prove the rule. 
and I and I am writing comedy, and so unfortunately yeah. for me, I don't get to tackle those heavy-duty social issues. So right. in this case, I admit except it, obliquely. I brush them under the, except yeah. obliquely, I kind of brush them under the, yeah. which is it's really sad for me because one of the things I'm discovering is that I have a lot of fans who range in ethnicity, mm -hmm. and I'd really like to kind of acknowledge that by having characters mm -hmm. that represent different parts yeah. of the world in my book, but I'm really, I can't do that in Victorian society right. without acknowledging the fact that they would have been ostracized. So mm -hmm. it's it's very Yeah, and it would be kind of uncomfortable to have Alexia displaying all the racist attitudes that she would surely have. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, there may come a time where, because of plot or whatever, I'm forced to do that. But so far, I've, I've written three books, and I haven't had to. Um, who knows? <laughs> it, yeah, it's, it's fascinating stuff. It, it, one, of, one of the things that I've, that I've always enjoyed about reading primary source material from the Victorian era is the more, some of the more enlightened by our standards thinkers of the time would... You know, Are some of the most bigoted. Well... Some of the most bigoted, but uh, oh, a good example is in uh, in uh, Travels on the Beagle. Darwin is talking about the native peoples in the typical racist language of the time, and then he gets he gets to a point where in I think it was in Argentina, um, Tierra del Fuego. In Tierra del Fuego, there's an execution um, or a sacrifice of a native woman. And he says it was only our bigotry that prevented us from seeing this as the terrible thing it was. Mm. And he wow. goes on to reflect on his own bigotry. Wow. And and that sort of thing crops up it does. In, in Victorian literature where they, they were aware of, of, of how hypocritical it was, but they couldn't quite break out of it. No, it's it's very, very true. And, and That kind of thing would be really fascinating to read, I think. Mm -hmm. And I, mean, I think it's possible to have some of the characters deal with that mm -hmm. um, in this, in the same, especially if you're dealing with the intelli intelligentsia. I mean, right. mm -hmm. but uh, and your characters are in an unusual position because they've got an analogy to the the whole bigotry thing going on because of the way that the vampires and the exactly. werewolves. Exactly, that's my then that is the excuse is I get mm -hmm. to I get to have in a strange kind of way the, mm -hmm. a down from 10 mentality present in the book <laughs> because I have these immortal immortals mm -hmm. mucking around and right. and I devoutly believe that if you're immortal you're going to get bored with <laughs> almost everything pretty uh -huh. fast and mm -hmm. Certainly, restrictions on sexuality are going to go out the yep. door within the first hundred years. <laughs> no question, you know. Yes. Oh, I love Lord Akeldama. Yeah, he is fabulous. <laughs> fabulous. <laughs> in the immortal word of tea. He is fabulous. Uh, Somebody uh, once said, and the only thing that sparkles about him is his waistcoats. Which <laughs> <laughs> okay, who's next? His eyes. I think. Uh, I think it's Chris. It's me, yeah. Okay. From Heiko. Hey Dan, listen to Down From 10 F1 and 2. Wow, this is starting out fun. I like the lightness and I am already pretty hooked after two apps. Now, after some praise, on to my bit of being critical. Wink. <laughs> I've listened to both episodes in the car and found episode 2 to be sonically not quite okay for that environment. I can't say exactly why, everything sounded a bit tinny compared to F1. Of course, now that I'm listening with my good headphones to check and be able to give you better pointers, I can't pinpoint anything of the sort. However... By the way, I've located the problem, and I had the wrong EQ curve set on the background noise in the room, and so it was harmonically reinforcing the reverb in an unpleasant way. Gotcha. So that's fixed for the Podio Books version, and when I get that up, I will also replace it on the feed. Cool. 
However, it seems to me that Chris's character sounds too quiet in the mix by that was quite a bit. also an EQ problem that mm -hmm. is now fixed for later upload. Mm -hmm. I also feel like the reverb of all the characters talking out loud in Ep2, not the thinking or narrator reverb, which is naturally different, mm -hmm. aren't quite matched, sounds a bit weird, and like they aren't all in the same location, but I think they are all in the same room, right? Yeah, it was the same. That mm -hmm. EQ problem. Yeah. Keep pervasive in that episode. <laughs> yeah. Keep up the great work. And work faster, damn it! Why can't <laughs> I'm you trying. do? Why can't you do an episode a day, huh? <laughs> well, I know it's a rhetorical question. Thanks. I didn't have a life. <laughs> if 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 we could get the all of the actors to record thirty five episodes worth of book um, in one week and send it all to us right at the beginning, maybe. <laughs> Maybe not. Nah, then, still. Yeah. Still not. If I had nothing else to do, I could do an episode every two days. But that would be very hard work. Yeah. Emotionally draining. Yeah, yeah, I cry over my own episodes, I know. Yeah, and I, if, if he was on that kind of work schedule, I'd practically have to come home from work just to make enough tea to get him through <laughs> it. Kitty! Oh, this one is from Miss Calendar. Oh, hey. Hey. Is Sarah and is the mistress of the Brass Needles podcast. And Ding. Will, and will be appearing in Metamore City in Metamore Things City. Unseen. Yay. Ding. <laughs> Hi, Dan. Just wanted to say thank you for another great episode. I don't know where you find the energy to do everything you do, but I'm happy you get through it. Thanks again for brightening my day. Hope to see you soon. Thank you. <laughs> Miss Kay. She's so cool. It's all the tea. <laughs> Can you tell what time of day it is here? We're all tea-centric at the moment. Caffeine. Uh, oh, this is another another one from Mary Laura. And rather aptly, she says at the beginning, Is it Sarah? Since she's the only woman so far to be attacked by the nightmare phenomenon. Or is it Amos? Oh, is it Amos's dream girl Amy? I, mm. I don't know what she's talking about. I think she's talking about the figure on the top right of the banner. Oh, I thought it could be the ghost of Carol's grandmother, but she seems a fairly benign character from what we know of her so far, though she may be more affected by the Native American history of the location, having lived there so long. All guesses, it's driving me crazy. Um, well, mm. as with as with all things artistic, you can pick one. Um, mm. If I had to pick one, I'd say she most closely resembles the way Sarah's described. Mm. The figure but, on the upper right? Yeah. But okay. we now know, of course, that, that it was just spontaneous. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I yeah. have I have a bag of tricks, and I put it together, and I got something that felt right. Mm -hmm. It's so funny when a reader like contacts you and says, oh, what's the significance of blah, blah, blah? And you're <laughs> yeah. like, it's just a cat. You know, like, yeah. whatever. <laughs> I just wrote it. I'm sorry. There's, there's, <laughs> there's no significance. You... Well, and it's part... It, Part of it is that subconscious thing. There's a lot of things we stick in just because of whimsy or because yeah. it sounds cool. And it might and, become important. And it might become important to you or it might not, but then the readers see it as part of a larger whole that you didn't see. And, and they so get they to create, analyze it, yeah. You know, yeah. They, they create a mystique around it that's, that's really fabulous. I, mean, I always wonder this in literature classes back in, in high school and college where you'd be reading somebody like Thomas Mann or what, mm -hmm. and just analyze the <laughs> crap out of these writers. Uh -huh. And then I ended up thinking... You know, it can't possibly be all that. Like, <laughs> the writers just wrote it. You know, they mm. just stuck that. They like man has this thing about colors in right. his books. I don't know if you've I, read I them. Just, I, them yeah, I, I had they just the, stuck it in I there. I had the same mm. thing because going through most of a lit degree, I was like, mm -hmm. 
you know, you get to this point where you're like, are we not belaboring the point of it? But then mm-hmm. turning around as a writer, I found it very useful because mm-hmm. it it helped blunt that that fear edge of plagiarism that we've all got. Oh, am I stealing this from someone? Mm-hmm. When you realize that everybody is subconsciously stealing from everyone around it's them. True, and yeah. that it only becomes a problem when you're copying from someone deliberately <laughs> or when you're subconsciously stealing something so close that it's mm-hmm. not you anymore. Yeah. Well, it's also that thing about the artwork, and I, I generally hesitate to call a, the written word an art piece, mm-hmm. but just for the sake of argument, it's that thing about once it becomes something that is read by other people, what mm-hmm. they bring to it and what they're taking away from it is more of the sum of what you originally wrote down. Yeah. Yeah. And that's part of the experience, well, yeah, whether you intend yeah. it or not. It's a conversation. Exactly. The story is created I, I, yeah. between the author and the reader. Right, yeah. well, and I do, I, I, I do not like Foucault and Derrida, not that you could tell. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the whole concept of the death of the author, I think, is absolute bullshit the way that it's been... Um, the way that it's been elucidated in literary studies. The author's intent is important. Mm-hmm. The author's intent, however, does not have to rule the reader's experience. Exactly. Right? And that's where they're on to something. Yeah. And the reader's experience is important apart from the author's intent. But I think there's value in finding, you know, figuring out what the author's intent was, even if you decide you don't like it, even though you like the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it like, is uh, like Taming, looking... Taming of the Shrew is like that. Mm. I love Taming of the Shrew. Oh, me too. Um, it's one of my favorites. Uh, the author's intent is Not arguably so <laughs> very anti-feminist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, There's that's, some brilliant stuff in there. But there's brilliant stuff all the way through there. So I enjoy the play, even though I think the and author's I've, intent was fairly ignoble. I've seen it played where by saying yeah, exactly the, the same around. lines, yep. just with a different tone of voice, mm-hmm. it becomes like mm-hmm. a feminist play yeah. instead. It's or, pretty remarkable. Or like Merchant of Venice Merchant in of the Venice. way that Shylock is Exactly. Playing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And there are some people who disagree with recasting or re-kind of modeling the performances in Shakespeare, but mm-hmm. I always thought that Shakespeare's meant to move, move with the times, right. mm-hmm. and that's part of the charm of it is watching a reinterpretation of a yeah, play. I, 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 I like I, the reinterpret. I, I like both the the, orig- the stuff that tries to be faithful to the original and the reinterpretation. Yeah, because it's such different perspectives. Yeah, and juxtaposing one against the other gives you a wonderful kind of gauge of how cultures evolve over time. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I've um, noticed that the, even the Royal Shakespeare Company, they their Shakespearean plays are in modern dress now. Some, mm. Yeah, sometimes. Sometimes they. I mean, I, they, they, I, they, I, I see some of the photos that, that come out and I'm like, they're in an overcoat and suit and jeans? Some and of jeans? my favorite what? performances have been like, I saw The Merchant of Venice set in a trailer park in the 1970s. Oh, it was brilliant. Wow. <laughs> it was just genius. It was great. Yeah. And, and the other reason I like that, that you know, seeing the, the, origin, the original t- intent type of productions is that you know, it's very easy to forget things like the racism of the mm-hmm, past mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. And, and the weird philosophies that govern some of the things that really shook the world up. And, it's, and, and you like don't want we to romanticize. It's like yeah. the Victorian. You don't want to romanticize the past too much right. because it had its mm-hmm. pimples and its boils. Right. And you and can't it, forget that. And, 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 from, our, from, <laughs> and, and from our perspective today, we, and often, we often romanticize things that people of the time really looked down on. Yes. And we demonize things that people of the time thought were but very, normal very, and either normal or, or very good. good. Like the, um, the conversation we were having yesterday about Roman gladiators. Yes. Mm. And the way gladiators were perceived by people of the time versus... And actors versus the way gladiators and actors are perceived now. now. Yeah. 
Um, which is one of the reasons I loved HBO's Rome, because it was Roman morality. Oh, brilliant. <gasps> brilliant. And it, it, it makes you always wonder what people in the future are going to think about us. Oh, oh yeah, it's going to be interesting. I, I, I love pondering that and going, hmm. <laughs> what, what are, are those things? Yeah, yeah. What are the things that we accept now without question mm-hmm. as good? Are they going to look in the past? They're going to be like, right. One of the questions I always get about the Victorian era is whether I would switch places with any of my characters or go back. And, and my answer is always, no. absolutely not. No, 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 no. <laughs> Never. I mean, oh, it was filthy and probably very, very smelly. Oh, <laughs> yes. The <laughs> later other Victorian things. era, far less smelly than the earlier after a Biojet sewer system got Exactly. <laughs> but still. Because after Biojet, you know. The Thames, be... though. I mean, oh, it's yeah. still the pong on a even, bad day even in now London. It still stinks, mm-hmm. yeah. I, I imagine would, what it was like back then. I, I just would not want to live in any era where you have to wear perfume it's, it's to block era. out the smell of everything mm-hmm. else around you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I would become ill. And all of this stuff, people get so romantic about steam power but it's mm. like coal and coal big notebook yes. smoky black smokestacks <laughs> everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I had so mm-hmm. much fun with that in Cold Duty. Well, you can do it's one of it is one of the few things I'm a little back to Rome, but it's one of the few things it's Rome was a lot dirtier than they depicted. Oh yeah. Sooty dirty. I'm in mm-hmm. there cuz there were all of the oh, yeah. um, kilns and going yeah, mm-hmm. it was all the artisans up and running. Mm-hmm. Um, Although much cleaner than most of the Middle Ages. <laughs> true. Oh, yes. True. Well, Rome had Rome was dirty, but Rome was not filthy. Mm, yeah. Rome had sanitation, which was very impressive, even by 19th century standards. Yeah. Mm. But it was very dirty. It had a lot of chemical pollution and a lot of yeah. know, grime. Lead. <laughs> and, and, yeah. and also uh, air pollution. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it, Rome is, streets, you know, is yeah. in the Tigris Valley and you know, like sort of smog, essentially smog. Mm-hmm. Would have, yeah. Wow. Yep. I've never thought about smog in ancient times. Well, it's oh, it's yeah. really interesting to think about. One of my um, study areas is a city that's an industrial city in the Islamic 12th century. And the name of the city at the time was Black Raqqa because um, it had all these kilns wow. that would light up. And the city was literally black with smoke. Wow. And that's, you know, 1100s. So yeah. definitely all around and about. Oh, moving on, who's next? I think I have to do the second half of this one, which is still from Mary Laura. Ah, I finally can make some sense of the image on the left. We're still on the image. (laughs) I I sent an email back to her because she was like pinging me and like, I must know! (laughs) Once I could make out the breast, I saw the snake. I'm looking at this on my iPod Touch, so it is all quite small. I suppose that's what threw me off to begin with. Which female character is into snakes? Or is the symbolism of temptation, seduction, forbidden knowledge, and maybe evil as well? <laughs> Am I on the right track? Well, in fact, there was a, a whole long discussion about, about temptation in the most recent episode. So, And I, there's mm, the person who has the snake. And also. Yeah. has the snake tattoo, yes. Yes. That, as just as an aside, that conversation is one of the best conversations I've ever seen <laughs> in any book that I've read. The whole Amos's whole thing about the the role of the literary Satan is just fabulous. <laughs> Thank you. And yeah, it's now on TVTropes.org it's because very, I love it so much. It's very I, collegiate, and I think Dan, this comes from your background. But sometimes when these guys are in discussion, I'm like, oh, 
I can see us all sitting in the hallway in undergraduate school uh -huh. having these kinds of conversations. Yep. <laughs> uh -huh. There's a reason I made so many of them professors. <laughs> yep. Because <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, I wanted to, but, well, the original note was be controversial. And I'm like, well, if I want to get really controversial, I need to have highly opinionated smart people who disagree with each other. Yep. This one is from Michael. Dan, hello, hello, Dan, Kitty, Chris, and whoever else is in the peanut gallery. Hello. Hello. I'm the peanut gallery. Excellent. <laughs> Yum. Damn, Sawyer, you don't do anything by half measures, do you? <laughs> you have managed to defy my expectations of what Down from Ten will be, and this is only the fourth episode. I should have remembered my lessons from Antithesis and not assumed anything. Instead, I gave in to my preconceptions of DF10 as Clue meets The Shining. <laughs> so first, so far, so good as the checklist of these things go. Good, amusing characters with large potential for interpersonal drama? Check. Imposing yet inspiring location, which will give characters spaces for smaller interactions and group confrontations? Check. Supernatural mystery? Cue sound of brakes squealing. <laughs> Here is where my idea happily falls apart. From the narration after everyone sacks out for the night, I expected the classic case of a simple ghost-demon scenario, but, oh no, you throw technology and a secret organization-slash-entity into the mix. The scene with the shadowy figure sneaking downstairs is one I would love to see on TV. Okay. Well done, you bastard. I love the evil dusting. It's I, like, I'm so glad you do. And I totally, I have this little duster that I love. It's this little poofy duster, and you roll it between your hands, and it gets really excited. And no, this one's like a lamb's wool, and it goes poof. And I always yeah. see the character with like this stupid little dinky <laughs> duster like imposing cloaked figure dumb duster all i can say is that if we all get up on new year's day and i see you wandering around <laughs> with a little duster <laughs> i'm really sure to wear a very black robe yeah. <laughs> goes on as always props must go out to the fine voice cast they help make DF10 one of the podcasts that I listen to with my eyes closed so as not to be distracted from any of the details. While it is still a little early to start making connections, I am gathering the pieces and hope to assemble them soon, until you scatter them to the floor with a new revelation. <laughs> <laughs> one last note, if you are still in the mood for swag ideas, a variable poster or shirt style print of the Rules of Scotch, I think, would do fairly well. Can't That's wait to one. hear the next installment. Keep up the excellent work. I want to beware the duster t-shirt. Ooh, that's Ooh. a good one, too. We, we were actually thinking about doing a pint glass with the rules of scotch. Uh -huh. Because <laughs> I wanted to do a shot glass, but they I, they wouldn't fit. I don't think they'll fit. You and cannot I'd... do a pint glass with the rules of scotch. We can do a tumbler, though. We could do it There's on a tumbler. There's no such thing as scotch in a pint glass. No. That's true. <laughs> totally we could do it on a tumbler. Yeah, scotch that's in a tumbler or... One of the double it, tall shots things called. Or you can make it in very small writing. Mm -hmm. Thus, you make it a challenge to drunk yeah. people. <laughs> if you are. So beware the duster. Huh? <laughs> if you can no longer read this, stop drinking. <laughs> or if you think it now reads, beware the duster. <laughs> stop drinking immediately. Nice. Maybe a shot glass that just says the rules of. Know the rules of scotch. Mm. Or, or to find the rules of scotch, go to a pint glass. <laughs> well, what's, re 
What's really fun about that, you know, there's the body casting thing, the feather duster. I mean, these are all little artifacts from around my house. You know, it's really funny. I'm watching Dan. Dan is a gesticulator, ladies and gentlemen. In case you hadn't guessed, he's one of those people who talks with his hands. And he always has his iced tea nearby. And you sit here, as I'm doing, looking at him, watching that tea. It is in danger at all times. But currently, Dan is holding a duster, which he is waggling around. He's <laughs> not even Italian. He no, has no, no right no, to be this yeah. gesticulatory. <laughs> well, one, one of the fun things about writing this, as opposed to writing, say, something in a, you know, a, a future a world future. off. Where there are know, no dusters. Where there are no dusters. For the revolution. Dusters for the revolution. Like here where I got stuck, I'm like, well, it's just an ordinary house and I need something. Oh, I'll take that. And I just look at the shelf and I point, that's going in the story. And yeah. note that the body cast was one of those things. The body so that should tell you a lot about thing. Dan's house. The, Ber- <laughs> the, the Bergerot and the Waterhouse paintings. The I mean, snake. You, the snake. Yep. The meat hole. The meat pipe. <laughs> the, the meat There's pipe. There's no way I can answer that without getting more obscene than my audience is used to. <laughs> The flogger. <laughs> the flogger, yes. I dare you to stick in a teeny tiny hat. I'm looking around his house right now, and there's a teeny tiny hat sitting on a shelf. Mm, maybe I'll teeny, do teeny that in print revision. I'll have a teeny tiny hat. Mm. <laughs> uh, Katie wearing a teeny tiny hat. <laughs> or the tassel with the word naughty on it. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very eclectic house. It's not very well arranged because it's a teeny house, but it's very eclectic. Later. All right. Last email from Feline. Ooh. Hey there, Dan. It's me. Yes, it's me, Feline from Austria. And I finally got around to writing you. Sorry it took so long, but I was really busy. Stupid real life keeps getting in the way of really important stuff. I have tried listening to Antithesis, but I just couldn't get into it, even though I really wanted to like it. Sorry. No problem. Maybe I'll give it another try when I find the time. Maybe on the train to Can't Stop the Serenity or when I'm repainting our windows. Not the glass, the frames, mind you. (laughs) Anyway, I've started listening to Down From Ten yesterday, and I have already caught up with the feed. It's actually kind of sad. I mean, what do I do now? Huh? (laughs) I guess what I really want to say is, hey, that's a great and gripping story that I really enjoy. Keep up the great work, and I really enjoy listening to it. And boy, howdy, did you get many people to do your voices. (laughs) It's a regular who is of the potosphere. Oh, it's a regular who's who of the potosphere. It is. It's pretty cool. I'm impressed and can't wait for the next episode. Hurry up already. If you get me really hooked, you might even get me to record you a voice message like I did for Chris, although I really don't enjoy listening to myself. But thanks for liking my accent. It made me feel good. Who's that? Feline from Austria. Bye Ah. for now and have a lovely day. Feline. Oh, thank you very much. That's exactly what I was hoping. I when when I started doing down from ten, I thought one of two things would happen: either I would turn off all the people who liked predestination, and I would lose my audience, or I would I would I would have a bunch of people who liked my style in predestination, but for whom the tone was too dark. Yeah, which was me. Like you, who would like this, and so I could have you know a broader audience in general, mm-hmm. and. That's what's been happening, and it's so much fun. DM. <laughs> so thank you very much for coming along, Feline, and I'm very glad you like it. And I believe now we are on to Twitter Twitter's. reviews. Twitters! Okay, and um, MG Katie says, you're insane, but we love you anyway. Hope you have a drink, because you're a magnificent bastard, and I want more. Mm. 
<laughs> I don't write while drunk, so that's not a very good uh, <laughs> prescription. He just writes while he's heavily caffeinated. But he's usually heavily caffeinated, so I don't know that that makes a difference. I don't think caffeine has any effect on me. Yeah, I, I think if you stop having gone. caffeine, you, you might go just slightly mad from the de- deprivation. I, I go slightly mad for fun. All this the time. is true. How would you tell the difference? There's no adequate control here. One of them would have a headache. <laughs> I don't get ca- I don't get withdrawal headaches when I go off caffeine. So. Mm, I lucky. do. Oh God, do I? Oh. <laughs> Anyways, um, Lee Cody says that is it. I will personally strangle Jeremiah if he whines one <laughs> more time. Jeremiah, the man we all love to hate. <laughs> he is getting on my nerves. Still love the story, though. Oh, and he's got a couple spectacular scenes coming up. Squeak! <laughs> I already had one of them. The bit with Gerd. I oh, love yes. doing that scene. <laughs> that, you want to talk about over-the-top rage. Mm-hmm. That was fun. Yeah. Just Wait. <laughs> All right, I have the great Merlin who says, wow, episode 15 was amazing. I don't know why. I am surprised each time, but you have outdone yourself once again. Huzzah. Thank you. Spiritual Tramp says, I'll say it again because it bears repeating. Down from 10 by D. Sawyer is how excellence in all stops out audio fiction is done. And he writes gorgeously on top of that. I hate D. Sawyer. <laughs> C.A. Sizemore responds, we all hate D. Sawyer in our own way. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much. Your hatred warms the cockles of my cold, dead heart. (laughs) Mm, It's a cockle-warming extravaganza. Yum. And uh, Warland102688 says, regarding episode 15... Great episode from of Down from Ten. It's getting to the point where I count down the days till the next one. Keep up the great work. <laughs> and my last one is from Balasine? Balasane? Don't know how it's pronounced. If it's any consolation, long eps of DF10 are pretty much my favorite thing. I get so excited when they appear in the feed. Thank you. Well, episode 16 will be a fairly short one, but then ep- the rest of them are actually all pretty long. So you will... Be greatly rewarded for your affection for them. And uh, that's it for our written stuff. And I'm actually kind of fading. Yeah, you should guys. we k- kick it in? Yeah, I'm thinking we should kick it in. I'll we didn't have of... any booze this time, yeah. guys, so we can't keep going late into the night. Yeah, I'll take I'll, I'll take care of the voicemail on a subsequent episode, maybe just with Kitty or maybe with Kitty and Chris, and um, <sighs> probably whenever we record the next Predestination one. But first, we have Chris a show to record because... <laughs> <laughs> it's his turn. Um, so anyway, not tonight. Uh, not, tonight. <laughs> not tonight. We're all fading, so thank you for coming along, and thank you very much, Gail, for joining us. My pleasure. It's delightful as always. <laughs> and uh, crit, uh, pimp your shit, everybody. Where can everyone find you? You can find me on the Down from Ten and Antithesis podcasts. Okay. Uh, you can find me online at www.gailcarriger.com. That's G A. I-L-C-A-R-R-I-G-E-R. And I'm all over the web under that name. Facebook, Twitter, you name it. 
And you can find her in the fantasy or paranormal romance section of your bookstore. Yes, you can. Soulless mm -hmm. is, and then uh, Changeless, the second book in the series, comes out in April. Whee! It'll be easy Whee! to spot the Soulless book cover because it has a face on it. Yes, it's not just a torso, and it has a parasol on it, and it just won an award. And it has a blimp or a zeppelin. That's the second book. Mm, yeah, Changeless. Yeah, Changeless when it comes has, out, it'll Changeless be easy has to spot. A, yeah, yeah. You can find my stuff at metamorecity.com. That's M-E-T-A-M-O-R-City.com. And you can find me on Twitter as Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. And you can find me at www.jdsawyer.net. You can call voicemail in for the next round of Madness at 206-350-5739. You can follow me on Twitter at dsawyer, and you can send in questions, comments, criticisms, and death threats. They are all welcome. Yay! And until... Especially the death threats. <laughs> <laughs> if there's a death threat extravaganza on the next uh, Antithesis Feedback episode. <laughs> so until next time... You can make the whole world end if you but count down from ten.